Welcome to the podcast. My name is Bruce Mole of Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm joined today by Michael Sullivan, the director of the State Office of Campaign and Political Finance. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for the invitation. Let's start off with a little, learn a little bit about you and your agency. What does your agency do? The easiest way for me to explain it is that we we enforce and administer the rules as to how politicians can raise and spend their campaign money. That's the easiest way to explain it to the average person on the street. There's a lot more to it than that, but that's basically it. And how long have you been running that agency? Uh, I've been the director uh, as of August of this year, 25 years. And how did you get that job? Who appoints you? Um, You are appointed by a bipartisan commission of four people to a six-year term. And they are literally called the Commission to Select the Director. And it consists of four people. The Secretary of the Commonwealth is the chair. The dean of a law school in Massachusetts who's appointed by the governor to this commission is on it. The chairman of the Republican Party and the chairman of the Democratic Party. And it has to be a unanimous vote. And I was actually a finalist for this job in 1988. I didn't get it. And uh, in 1994, I reapplied and I was appointed. And I just got reappointed this past November. And you have a six-year term, is that right? Six-year term. Yeah. All right. And, and I would say this, we are truly independent. Once they appoint you and set your salary, you don't, you don't really see them or talk to them unless there's some issue that you want to talk to them about. And you must like the job. You've been at it a while. It's, it's probably the most unique job in state government, yeah. I, it, money in politics is something that always interested me back when I was in college and looking to be an intern. So it's worked out pretty well. Good. So the latest issue that you've been dealing with of late is sort of defining what is a political committee. Mm-hmm. And, and in, the, in the press reports on this, uh, we've run some at Commonwealth sort of looking at who gives and what have you, but it's been called the union loophole. <laughs> uh, explain what people are talking about with that. So there is – the statute is pretty well written for the most part, but there's a section in the statute that talks about – contributions made by trusts, associations, and foundations. And it talks about how you will report them, that you have to have the principal officer of the association, the trust of the foundation, identified and what their office is. So clearly the legislature had an option or or made a decision at some point that they wanted those organizations to be able to make contributions. What they didn't do was put a limit on it. And so back in the 70s, long before I was there, Full disclosure, I think I might have been in high school or junior high. Um, there was a lot of discussion about whether or not there was a limit, and there were opinions that said there, weren't a, there was not a limit. Back in 1986, uh, our office, again before I was there, took a stab at trying to determine what, what it was, and they came up with what was called the incidental threshold. And what that meant was that if an organization spent 10% of its gross revenues or $15,000 in a calendar year, if they exceeded that number, they would have to register as a political committee. And within that memo, that interpretive bulletin, it basically said that you could write a check for $15,000 to a candidate. The unions have used that over the years, but not to the extent that everyone, I mean, there there have been a race here and there, but not to the extent that it's made out to be, uh, quite frankly. If if you look in 2017 and 2018, there are very, very few $15,000 checks floating around. And unions, in your de- earlier definition, are they an association? They're an association because they're, they're an entity that raises money through their dues process. We're not talking about their PAC here. That's a separate thing. And their PAC is limited under the Political Action Committee rules. But the general fund where the dues comes in, because they're not raising that money for a political purpose, 
unless they do what is more than incidental, the $15,000, we don't consider them a political committee. And that's where this all comes down from. So recently you proposed some regulations or, or put them out there yeah. uh, to, to sort of... Well, there was a court case. And the court case talked about our interpretive bulletin and said, you know, we don't have to rule on the interpretive bulletin, but it really doesn't have the force of law because it hasn't gone through the regulation process. And then Common Cause said, well, we think you should do a rulemaking. And they have the opportunity under the statute to petition us to do a rulemaking. So we did that. And we had a hearing. We took testimony. We discussed it. And we've come up with a proposed rule that we put out uh, on February 1st, last Friday. And, and some people, I read in the paper, it was quietly released. Well, no, actually, we wrote on our website that we were going to release it on February 1st, and we did. And I don't know what was quiet about that since we said we did exactly what we said we were going to do, but we released it. It's gotten some press. Um, we're going to have another hearing. I don't have the date. I think it might be March 5th. And then we'll uh, promulgate a final rule. But right now it's a proposed rule. It's not a final rule. And what would that rule do? Well, the rule won't change the 1015 concept in that once you exceed... 1015 concept, meaning the, the definition of, yeah, of the, this incidental issue right, and the associated... Okay. Right, so the 10,000, uh, the 10% of gross revenues or the $15,000, whichever is less, once you exceed that, then you have to become a political committee and organize with us and disclose your expenditures. Before that, uh, the, the major change here, I guess, is that a, a union can now write a check... For $15,000. Under the proposed rule, that will change. That it'll be only be $1,000. Almost like we're going to treat these associations like an individual. And one of the reasons we're thinking about that is because when they talk about the trusts and the foundations and the associations in Section 10 of our law, they actually are, they say that you've got to identify the principal officer. Well, that's an individual. So it seems to make sense. Right, right. Um, I actually think, let me, I just want to add this one point. I, I wonder legislation gets made in funny ways. They talk about, you know, making sausage. I wonder when they did this back in the 70s, they just forgot to put the limit in. That's quite possibly it's what happened. It's quite possible, yeah. Um, so when you had your hearings, um, and now there's a, uh, the Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance has made quite a brouhaha about this and is taking it to the Supreme Court and trying to, you know, rein in what they say are these union, this union loophole. But in your hearings, you must have heard from that viewpoint and you must have heard from unions as well. What, what was the consensus of these hearings? What, what, did you, what did you hear? Well, I heard a lot of stuff, both publicly and privately. <laughs> um, some people said, oh, you ought to, you ought to adjust the $15,000 limit for inflation and it should be $31,000. Some people should, said it should be zero. Some others said it should be what it is that a PAC uh, can give at this point. What I think everybody has to stop and take a deep breath and understand is that there's two issues here that are being conflated in, in the public, okay? The suit that's going to go to the Supreme Court or that is waiting to, to be heard by the Supreme Court on their calendar as to whether or not they'll grant cert really isn't about the union loophole. It's really about whether or not corporations should be able to give. That's the issue. They're, they're, they're suing under the Equal Protection Act, the, four, the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, to say if unions can give, corporations ought to be able to give. That's not the same issue as to whether or not the $15,000 rule is what should happen. But there's a conflation of those two issues. Right. And in the public's mind, that's as, as good as gold for some people who are out there pushing that agenda. And what about unions? How have they reacted to your uh, – well, in these hearings where you were t taking testimony? That's an interesting question. Um, 
as to be expected, I don't think they're thrilled about the idea. Um, but no one's like said, you know, this is the worst idea in the history of mankind. So I, I don't really know. Since we came out with the proposed regulation, there's not been a firestorm calling me saying, oh, my God, this is terrible. So I, I honestly don't have the answer to that question. I doubt they're thrilled with me. Yeah, but at your next hearing, you might hear more, obviously. I'm guaranteed I'll hear more at my next hearing. All right. Let, let's just move on a little bit. You said you've always been fascinated by um, money in campaigns and, mm-hmm. and, and how, how that works. Um, and my general perception is that money is a key factor in political campaigns. It's sort of many perceive it as the lifeblood of campaigns, mm-hmm. although others might say that it's the candidate, the ideas, what have you. Well, um, the, the, I would say that the press determines often the viability of a campaign by reporting on how much money they've raised. That's true. That's true. Um, and why is that? Why, why do we in the press, why do you think we focus on that? It's tangible. Yeah, it's, it's disclosed. That's what my agency does. Right. We show how much money's coming in, how much money's going out. It's something the press can actually put their finger on and say, look, this is what's happening, as opposed to really know what's going on door-to-door, perhaps, in a lower-level race, a ward race, or a selectman's race. That's a harder thing. That's more obtuse. They can't see you know, exactly what might be happening in the grassroots in the community. But when there's money involved, and they can look at that and say, oh, he raised $2 million in, the, you know, in, in a larger race, and the other candidate only raised 200000 Well, clearly, he's a stronger candidate. Well, that may not be the case, but that's the case as it's shown by the numbers. And so if, if money is a critical factor, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I guess where I'm going with this, I'm trying to get a little bit about Massachusetts is known for, frankly, a, lot, a lack of competition mm-hmm. in uh, state legislative races. Uh, I'm particularly talking about for the legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we're a sort of lopsided state in terms of Democrats and Republicans, but increasingly there are more and more independents, and they sort of command the middle ground. Mm-hmm. But the perception, right or wrong, is that we're more leaning Democrat, I would say. And I'm wondering from a money perspective, is this part of your job to sort of think about how do you increase competition? How do you help candidates uh you know, get over that hurdle of, so that, you know, for instance, in this last legislative series of races, um, some campaigns spent a lot of money, mm-hmm. uh, raised and spent an enormous amount of money for a state house rep seat or a state Senate seat. Um, and they seem, it's not every seat by any stretch of the imagination, sure. but some of these races, there's a lot of money being spent. Is that a good thing or is it is it healthy, or do we need to bring down some barriers to people well, getting into races? I think that depends on your viewpoint as to whether or not it's healthy or a good thing. Um, it, candidates don't like to raise money. It's one of the more distasteful things. I, I have not talked to many candidates over my tenure there who think it's a great I- idea to have to be out there raising money. I would say this. Uh, there's an old bromide that everybody hates Congress, everybody hates the legislature, but they love their rep or they love their congressman, and that's why the reelection rate is 90%. Incumbents raise more money. It's easier for them to do that. There's the whole, you know, does money breed access? So there's a there's a slew of issues that are here. It, it's it, you can't you can't dumb it down to say what's the right thing. Everybody's got a different opinion. My job isn't really to try to encourage more people to run. My job is to make sure that those who want to run 
understand what it is they need to do for disclosure to the public and understand what the rules are. So we spend a ton of time on education. Uh, this morning I spent uh, an hour and a half with our education guy talking to the city and town clerks in Massachusetts so they know what to do with their candidates when they have to file their disclosures. So I see my job, you know, we do enforcement, but I really see my job as education and administration, and we try to work with candidates. We do a, a one-hour seminar every Wednesday in our office, open, come on in. We want to talk to you. We want to make sure you understand what it is that you need to do. That's, that's what we do. It's, it's really a teaching environment. It's tough. It's tough to get people to run, you know. Uh, I mean, I remember one time, I'll get in trouble for saying this probably if my wife listens to this, but I mentioned that I wanted to run for mayor of my hometown. And the next word out of her mouth was the name of the local divorce lawyer. You know, <laughs> those are issues you gotta, you got to get through at home before you put your name on a ballot, never mind raising money. Right. But at the same time, uh, without putting you on the spot about whether you think it should be or shouldn't be, what I'm sort of curious about, I think there are some states that um, try to put candidates on a bit more equal footing. So here in Massachusetts, once you get elected, mm -hmm. it, it's generally very hard to unseat an incumbent here. And so because they sort of keep, even if they're not being challenged, they keep raising money. And our, and our studies show that people who raise the most money win the races 90-something percent of the time. So in some states, the last I checked, Minnesota is one mm -hmm. that has um, a sort of I guess my, what my term would be an anti-rollover clause, that if you win a campaign mm -hmm. and you're elected, that you can't build up or you can't take a war chest yeah. from one term to the next and, and launch, you know, your fend-off challenges yeah. that way. You have to return it to charity or you have to dispose of it some way. Yep. Mm -hmm. Is that... Is that... Because all these things about or, or maybe limiting how much... Uh, people can spend on a campaign. They raise First Amendment issues too. Mm -hmm. um, is that is that something that is legal? How, if say if the legislature, which is made up of mostly incumbents, if say they got this religion and want to do something, is that something they could do? What are the sure? What's your sense of that? Well, when you started the question, you said you didn't want to put me on the spot, but apparently I'm on the spot on this question. Um, well, I'm, I'm asking your opinion, not, yeah. not not about whether they should do it or I, not. I, I think it's I think it's absolutely legal if they wanted if they chose to do that to to make some kind of a process where they where they couldn't roll the money over. What I think you need to keep in mind is that when you raise dollar one, let's say that I raise money to run for city council, and then I decide I want to run for state rep. Well, the money I raise for city council I can use to run for state rep, and the money that I raise for state rep I can use to run for state senate, and so on all the way up to governor. So there's that ability to raise money and continue to raise money because I might be looking at the next office. And you know that, that over the years, people in the legislature have run statewide. That provides them with an opportunity. When Marty Walsh went to run for mayor of Boston, he had money in his campaign account. He just rolled that money into the, run, into the race for mayor. So I, I think there'd be some pushback in terms of saying to them, you can't keep that money and use that because everyone's always looking to the next race. I do know that they do it in some states. They, they have Sometimes they allow them to keep a portion and they call it an office holder account. I think they do that in one of the Midwest states. I, I, I do know what you're talking about in Minnesota. The, the director there is actually a friend of mine. And um, it seems to work pretty well. He doesn't have any problems with it. But I don't know how that would fly here. And what about limiting how much, I mean, that would limit how much you could roll over from one campaign mm -hmm. to the next. What about the idea of just limiting how much you can spend in a campaign? Does any state do that? or No, you can't. The only way you can do that is if you throw out a carrot, which is basically offer public financing. But other than that, you have First Amendment issues and freedom of speech. 
We have a, a limited public finance program for people who run statewide. Essentially, over the last 12 years, it's only had enough money in it to help some gubernatorial candidates. And what happens is, traditionally, in this case, the, the gubernatorial candidate on the Democratic side says, oh, I'll limit my spending. I'll get some public money. The candidate on the Republican side says, I'm not going to limit my spending. I'm going to raise as much and spend as much as I want. So the Democratic candidate not only gets the public funding, but gets his expenditure limit lifted up to what the Republican limit is, because I the see. Republicans have to put a self-imposed limit. So um, is there any other thing you've seen done in any other state or any practice to try and limit the influence of money in campaigns at all? You know, um, I was president twice of the national, our national association called COGO, Council on Government Election uh, Ethics Laws, and no one's ever talked about that. We, we, what we try not to do is be the policy makers, right? The, the people get elected to do that. I get, ele- I get appointed to implement the statute and administer it. So we always talk about best practices on how to deal with what we've got. For example, in Massachusetts, there are two systems of disclosure. Well, how, how candidates disclose their activity. There's what's called the non-depository system where the candidates do their own reporting. And then there's called the depository system where the banks do some of the reporting and the candidates do. Other, we are the only state in the country that have this, the depository system. Other states are dying to do it. They all want to try to do it, but they can't figure out how to get started because everyone, everyone in the other states got elected under that system. So they like that system. Why would you want to change the system you got elected under? It makes sense to you. You know how to do it. Um, I'd like to. I'd like to change it here. I'd like to push to, for the depository system for our legislative candidates, because the very first thing I would tell you with with that is, I'll never have a problem with understanding how much money they have, because the bank's going to tell me twice a month exactly how much is in that account. It works. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's the administration kind of thing that we talk about. And are you uh, in your agency the one that? has to rule on whether people are spending their campaign funds appropriately? Um, the language in the statute about how you spend your money is very vague. It says it must be used for the enhancement of your political future so long as it is not primarily for yours or anyone else's personal use. Um, so that's a pretty gray area. But, yeah, we, we handle that. Um, oftentimes I will use the – when I talk to people and try to counsel them, I will use what I call the reality versus legality standard. Which Say that again. You're the, the reality oh, versus reality. Leal- legality. Um, you know, it may be legal, but it might not be the smartest idea. And so we have that discussion sometimes because do you want to really want to read about this in the newspaper or on a blog right. or on a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> but but um, it does seem like there are. Um, yeah, that is a very gray area. Is a rental car that you use for your political. Uh, benefit or is it for your personal benefit? Mm-hmm. Is long conversations about cars. Cars, phones, um, meals. Meals. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, there does seem to be a, quite a bit of... And, and you're right. There's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of gnashing of teeth on, on some people's part. Here's, at the end of the day, the people who elect you can see what you've done and they make a decision on whether or not they think it's a good idea with what you've done, and they can vote to reelect you or not. Um, if it's egregious, obviously, if you're going to Disney World with the family, that's personal use. That's going to be a problem. We've had cases like that in the past, um, and we've done disposition agreements. Of we sent them to uh, to the attorney general, uh, John Bonomo, a case from several years ago, was a registrar of deeds who was reimbursing himself for postage that he never really bought. 
and uh, we were able to go through some bank records and determine that they were fraudulent, the bank records that he provided us because we had subpoenaed other bank records, and he ended up going to jail for two and a half years for a personal use violation. So that does happen. For postage? Uh, for po Well, he said he was buying postage. Yeah. Uh, everybody knows when they go to the post office, they give you a receipt. Right. He had no receipts. Yeah. And, and my bank records from the subpoena were different than the bank records he provided me, so I knew they had been doctored. And you said a any uh, voter can see how their uh, politician or their representative or senator is spending their money. Uh, do you think a lot of people look at that? You know what's funny is I don't know. Um, we have a lot of hits on our website. We can track the hits. We don't know where they come from, but we can track them, and, and it goes up every year, exponentially it goes up. Really? Um, what is funny is a friend of mine is a public employee, somewhat politically active, and we, we were at a Christmas party once, and I said, come here, I want to show you something, and I showed him our website, and I never got him away from the computer the whole night, and his wife said to me the next day, what did you do with Johnny? He was fascinated with <laughs> fascinated. something. Fascinated. There's a treasure trove of information on our website. Um, and you pay for it. Everybody pays for it in the Commonwealth through their tax dollars. We do everything in-house. It's a great website, and the data in there is amazing. So, you know, if people don't use it, I, uh, it's too bad because it's really a good resource to find out what's going on with your rep or your senator, the governor, whoever. It's all out there. Give me a little cheat sheet if you can. If I wanted to see how my representative, my senator, um, whether they were – how they were spending their money – I've been to your website many times, so you can see who donates to, yep. to your, the candidate, and you can see how they spend it. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's a little complicated because some people put it on credit cards, and you have to hit another click-through to yes. get to that. We're getting better at that. We're, we're, we're trying to make that easier on a one-click basis. But is there, if, if you're a regular voter, what, what would you be looking for? What, 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 do, you, what do you sense people are... Uh, I'm, I'm, if I'm a regular voter which obviously I'm not, I'm a little more schooled in this, but my first thought would be if I'm voting for my state rep or my state senator, where's the money coming from? Is it coming from within the district? Do I know the people who are giving to him? Is that something that I should be interested in? Does it bother me if it's not coming from those, those folks? Um, is there a particular industry that's giving to him? And, and um, for example, if there are 20 people from the same firm giving money, wh why is that? You know, and that's actually an investigative question we ask all the time. Uh, we've done a lot of dark money uh, investigations where we found out that people in companies are funneling money to the to the candidates. Candidates don't know it, um, but the employees are getting money from their boss, and they're funnel the boss is funneling the money through the company to the employees, and they're making contributions. We can track that. So we've done about 20 disposition agreements with folks on that. You know, there's a lot of information. How are they spending it? Do you approve of how they spend it? It goes back to m making the decision on what you think they're doing and whether you think they're doing it correctly. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, well, we'll all have to check. And what is the address of the website? How does uh, someone get there? You can go to the website at uh, ocpf.us, very simple. And you can either click on filers and put in a name, or you can click on data. And you can search by name. You can search by town. You can search by uh, employer, occupation. Pretty much you name it. You can search by it. Well, that's um, Michael Sullivan, the director of the State Office of Campaign and Political Finance. Michael, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Enjoyed it. And we'll see all our listeners next week.